The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you satisfy our thirst this morning? <clears throat> and may we know and understand that our thirst can only be satisfied in you. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> We're starting a new three-week series of sermons this morning that will take us inside one of the strangest and most profound encounters that Jesus has with an individual in the Gospels. It's the story of the woman at the well. Now, I just read the first 15 verses of this remarkable story to you, and I hope you'll open up to it in those red Bibles in front of you. You can find it in John chapter 4 on page 888. I want to begin this morning by talking about the social and political world in which this unusual interaction takes place because it's important for understanding what's going on here. In the opening lines of this chapter, we learn that Jesus has been in Judea, the heart of the Jewish homeland, visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover and then traveling around the countryside with his disciples. But the Pharisees have gotten wind of his growing popularity and they are nervous. I guess they have a right to be nervous. This was how Jewish revolutionary bands had formed in the past, leading to uprisings against the Romans, which inevitably resulted in the suppression of the Jewish people and increasingly complex politics in Jerusalem. Now, of course, politics in Jerusalem were always complex under the Romans. Herod was Rome's regional representative, and he ruled with a particular brand of ruthlessness. He was half Jewish, wholly Romanized, and extremely vindictive. 
Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, they were divided between Herodians, loyal to Herod at just about any cost, revolutionaries who typically ended up dead, and then those who just kept their heads down and tried not to disturb the Pax Romana. But attitudes toward Rome weren't the only things dividing the Jews at this time. Theological differences had broken them up into sects that were constantly at odds with one another. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two you're most familiar with, they battled for control of the temple temple and for social dominance in Jerusalem and beyond. Well, there were also the Essenes. This was a group who became so utterly disillusioned by life in Jerusalem that they decamped to the desert in order to get away from everyone else. Religion and politics were mixed up in a toxic stew. Racial and ethnic divisions were profound. There was a culture of suspicion, which led to resentment. Sectarian identity was rooted not so much in shared theology as it was in shared loathing. And if there was one group of people, one group that every Jew could agree to loathe, it was the Samaritans. The Samaritans lived in the hill country to the north of Jerusalem. Now, this is the same area where Ahab ruled and Elijah ministered many centuries before. In the intervening years, most of the Jews of this region had been carted off into exile in Assyria, and the area had been repopulated with a mixture of Assyrian settlers and Jews who had been left behind. As a result, Samaritans were a mixed race with a potluck religion, drawing from Assyrian, Babylonian, and Jewish traditions. And they were represented, and they were resented, they were resented by the Jews of the South with that special kind of resentment reserved for family members who have wandered off the reservation. The Samaritans, predictably predictably enough, were just as hostile to the Jews. Only a few decades before Jesus' ministry, a group of Samaritans had intentionally spoiled the Passover feast in Jerusalem by desecrating the temple courts, covering them with human bones. These people did not like each other. This is the social world that Jesus inhabited. It was a culture of mutual suspicion and sectarian rivalry among the Jews, all of whom shared a resentment of the Samaritans. Now, this raises the obvious question, why then does Jesus visit Samaria? Let's take a look at the text, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So at first glance, Jesus' travel plans seem straightforward. He's leaving the political turmoil of Jerusalem in order to go back to Galilee, which lies due north on the other side of Samaria. Verse 3 says, in fact, that he had to pass through Samaria. But this isn't exactly the case, geographically speaking. 
You see, Jews regularly traveled between Jerusalem and Galilee by a different route along the Jordan River Valley. It took a little longer, but it allowed them to avoid the danger and the distress of traveling through the hilltop towns of those despised Samaritans. So what are we to make of this phrase, he had to pass through Samaria? Well, John the author of this gospel. He uses this same phrase on more than half a dozen other occasions to refer to the necessity of a thing not because of external circumstances, but because of God's will. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because of topography. He had to go through Samaria because it was a part of God's plan. Now, in order to find out why it was part of God's plan, we need to keep reading. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus is alone. It's midday, as we have learned at the end of verse 6. That's the hottest time of day, and it's a strange time for a woman to leave town to fetch water from a well. But as Jesus sits resting after a long morning of travel, a lone woman approaches. Having nothing with which to draw water for himself, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she's astonished. Jews don't ask Samaritans for anything. And for a Jewish man to admit that he needs something from a Samaritan woman? It was unthinkable. There are ethnic, religious, and gender barriers that stand between these two. But Jesus is undeterred because there's more at stake here than a simple drink of water. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus turns the tables. It's no longer about what she can do for him, but what he can do for her. All that she can give him is a drink, but he can give her living water in endless supply. Now, the woman is understandably confused by the abrupt shift in conversation, and she wonders how Jesus plans to follow through on his offer. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you've nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She has no idea what he's talking about, and you can't blame her we would be just as confused. They're sitting at Jacob's well. It's an important spot for both Jews and Samaritans because it was the place where God provided water for Jacob to raise his sons who grew to become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob wasn't just a man. He was a symbol of God's covenant, a covenant in which both Samaritans and Jews put their trust. The woman senses that Jesus is making a claim that rivals Jacob in importance, which, of course, he is. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. No longer is Jesus talking about water. He's talking about everlasting life. In a matter matter of moments, the conversation has gone from, may I have a drink, to would you like to live forever? To her credit, the woman responds quite simply, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Their conversation has only just begun, but there's already so much for us to reflect on in this unfolding story. And in particular, I want to ask you to consider three things about Jesus that we see so far in this interaction. And the first is the distance Jesus travels. The distance Jesus travels. There is, of course, the distance he traveled on foot from the Judean countryside up into the hills of Samaria. But that's not the distance I'm talking about. I'm thinking instead of the distance he has traveled from the right hand of God to the outstretched hand of this woman. So do you remember how John's gospel begins just a few chapters before this? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus begins His journey to Samaria at the right hand of God. He's the eternal Son of God who spoke the world into being. He created flesh and blood. Is there any greater distance than that between creature and creator? We are categorically, fundamentally, profoundly different from God. But Jesus decided to close the distance. Again, John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus took on the flesh and blood he so carefully created, and he did so for a reason. Once again, John 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Why did Jesus come all this way from heaven to earth to take on human flesh? He came all this way to save us because he loves us as his own children. Isn't it just a few sentences before the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus tells Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Think about this. The God who spoke water into existence sat down at the edge of a well in the heat of the day, unable to draw so much as a cup of water on his own to satisfy his thirst, all because he loved the idolatrous foreign woman he knew would soon be there to draw water for herself. He came this far for her, and he came this far for you 
Now you may find yourself in a position similar to the woman at the well this morning. You may feel like you don't quite fit with Jesus. You don't understand this whole living water thing. Well, let me encourage you to stick around, to keep listening, to read ahead, to hear him out. Now, many of you have already been in this position. You've stuck around. You've heard Jesus out. You've received his offer of eternal life with a sense of incredible wonder and joy. You know just how far he came for you, and you've received his salvation gladly. But it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to forget that he came just as far to save the Samaritans of this world, those whom we resent, even those whom we loathe. And that leads us to the second thing that I want you to consider in this opening scene, which are the barriers Jesus breaks. So Jesus lived in a divided world, a world divided by politics, religion, ethnicity, and gender. He lived in a world fueled by resentment. In this context, He cared little for taking sides. He was an equal opportunity offender. He angered the Romans, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees because he cared about everyone. He refused to give in to the politics of resentment because he embodied the gospel of love. And he took this gospel of love to the one place every Jew agreed was out of bounds, Samaria. And he spoke not to his social equal in this context, but to a woman. And as we'll discover next week, this woman was immoral. She was promiscuous. Jesus broke through all of these barriers because the simple truth is that no barrier can withstand the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm sure you see that we too live in a culture that is fueled by resentment. We've divided ourselves in many ways into tribes and sects. We've made outrage a virtue. And all the while, our Creator sits on the edge of a well under the hot sun, waiting for a woman everyone resented so that He can ask her a favor and then share with her the love of God. What's the secret? How do we inhabit a culture of resentment and still embody the gospel of love? Well, I think it has to do with how we see other people. Jesus was fully aware of the ethnic tension in this encounter. He was conscious of the religious obstacles. He had no illusions about the awkwardness of a man speaking to a woman he didn't know. He also knew that she was a sinner through and through, Of course he saw these barriers, but he saw something else as well. He saw her need. He saw her thirst, her unmet longing for love, her hunger to live, to really live. He saw these things, and he loved her. Now, I don't know who in your life you might need to see differently but I'm willing to bet that you probably know who that is. My encouragement to you is to look past the barriers, to see their deepest need for the love of Jesus, 
and then dare to ask Jesus yourself how you can show his love to them. So we've considered the distance that Jesus travels and the barriers that Jesus breaks. Last but not least, I want you to consider the gift that Jesus offers. In verse 10, Jesus told the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now I have to say, I, I feel sorry for this poor woman. She must have been so confused. She probably imagined that Jesus was going to show her a hidden stream nearby or that miraculously he was going to arrange for indoor plumbing in her home, which would have been truly amazing in those days. But he's talking about something completely different, which he eventually explains. Pointing to the well, I imagine, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She knew that running water, a stream or a river, was better than well water because it was constantly replenished. But it didn't remove her need entirely. She was still thirsty. The living water that Jesus describes by contrast doesn't merely satisfy one's thirst, it removes thirst completely. It establishes a new reality in which you're never thirsty again because the water simply flows and flows and flows within you. What Jesus is talking about here, which we'll get to next week, is actually sin and sacrifice. Whether you were a Samaritan in the hills or a Jew in Jerusalem, you had to make regular sacrifices to atone for your sin. What Jesus is offering is a one-time sacrifice for sin that leads to eternal life with God. He's talking about himself. The gift of God turns out to be the life of his son. The gift of God is the gift of God. Jesus gives himself for us, and he gives himself to us that we might share everlasting life with him. In just a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper, where Jesus offers us a cup of wine as a symbol of his blood. It's a reminder of the incredible distance he traveled to redeem us, the barriers that he broke to reach us, and the way that he satisfies our deepest thirst. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are thirsty. We long for the flowing water of your eternal presence with us. We pray that this day you would fill us, you would satisfy our thirst. Pray that you would nourish us as we share in your supper together. And we pray that you would send us out from here, bearing this living water to those around us, those whom we love and those whom we resent, that we might be transformed by your love for us 
and carry it into the world. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.